I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I do think that if something is on a menu that, you know, one particular cook had an especially strong hand in developing, I don't think that it is absurd to put that name on the menu because I do think it will remind people that there are other people there that aren't named, maybe called chef or aren't referred to in the press. It reminds writers and reviewers that there are other people there other than the chef. And while I do believe taking on, you know, all that risk with one's name and with one's money in some cases to run a restaurant, to own it and and be the chef is important yes because you know they're they are putting all of that on their own their own backs but they're doing that along with these other people who are entrusting their livelihoods to them and entrusting their creativity to them too in a lot of ways there is a change you know no society no industry can go through what restaurants are going through right now and what we in american society are going through without change those are the voices of alicia kennedy and chandra ram our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are doing okay. I hope you are safe and healthy. I hope you managed to have something like a normal weekend during these tumultuous times. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you have probably heard me use the expression, things change. That's obviously not an expression I created, but it is one that I think needs to be kept in mind at all times and all contexts. I'd even go so far to say that in my humble opinion, the ability to accept and embrace that things change is one of the things that will keep you young and relevant as the years roll by. I mention this because there were two articles about the restaurant industry recently that forced me to check myself on this front. One was, there's no I in jam. Squirrel wrestles with the sticky question of who really owns a recipe. That was by Farley Elliott in Eater. The other was in the New Republic, and the headline was, How Food Media Created Monsters in the Kitchen by Kate Telfayan. And Kate, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. It's T-E-L-F-E-Y-A-N. Now, my initial reaction to both articles, if I'm honest, and I'm speaking especially about the one about recipe authorship and ownership, was disagreement. But after processing my thoughts for a while, I began to wonder, is this just one area in which things are changing? After being done one way for generations, will this subject be addressed in a new way? It goes counter to my own experience and thinking, but that doesn't mean it's objectively wrong. And another system of doing things being older doesn't make it inherently right. In fact, we are often shown just the opposite is true. I was going to write a post about all of this, but I decided that I would be better served and that it would be better for all of you to solicit a range of different opinions and thinking on these areas. So I invited two people whose work I admire to come on the show today. One is Alicia Kennedy, whose writing I find essential, and I do have links to her newsletter and her bio and other work she's done on the episode page for this show on andrewtalkstochefs.com. If you listen at Apple Podcasts, the links are also functional there. And Chandra Ram, friend of the pod and a friend of mine personally, who is the editor-of-chief of Plate Magazine and Plate Online, and who also happens to be a former professional cook. So I thought she was very well qualified to speak to some of these topics from both sides of the fence. What follows isn't a debate at all. None of us tried to persuade each other. We simply shared our opinions and our own experiences, and we listened to those of each other. The exercise was edifying for me, and I hope it will be for you as well. As much as any recent episode we've done here, I would really love to know what you think. You can email or voicemail me via the links at the bottom of the web pages at andrewtalkstochefs.com 
or you can message me on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. I'm going to present this show with no commercial interruptions. So let me just remind everybody up front. We are now a fully independent podcast, so we appreciate whatever support you can give us. You can tell your friends, share episodes on social media, or if you are able to at this difficult time, support us financially via our Patreon page at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Andrew Talks to Chefs. Come in at the $10 per month or more level, and you will receive bonus content, including a roughly two-hour bonus episode each month. And with that, here we go. I'm going to present it to you again, interruption-free, my conversation with Alicia Kennedy and Chandra Ram. Here you go. There were two articles last week that I read that I thought brought up a lot of interesting points. Uh, But to be totally frank about it, there were some things I... I disagreed with, and I, I guess I should say at the outset that I know, you know, a lot of things tend to be discussed in extremes right now. I should just say, I, I, you know, for me, these are just some small disagreements, but I thought they were worth discussing with people who are intimately familiar with some of these issues because, you know, I do think thinking is in flux right now, and I, I thought th- the three of us would be a good combination of people to talk about it. One thing was, and we almost now have to, by the day, identify what Jessica Coslow article at Eater LA were talking about. The one that Farley Elliott wrote that was about the issue of credit in kitchens. You know, uh, people, not the chef or executive chef or chef de cuisine, I guess you would even say, who contribute ideas, uh, adjustments, uh, recipes or sub-recipes to a dish and, and, you know, whether or not it's appropriate or necessary that they be accorded some kind of credit. And I think the point of the article, because they did mention in the case of Jessica, you know, there have been nods on social media and whatnot, but I think we're talking specifically, you know, in the restaurant in some fashion. And I guess before I share my feeling about this, and I'd love to keep this general, right? Because there's so much kind of directed at Jessica right now, who I should say, I don't really know at all. We met for two seconds once, but we have no relationship. But I do think there are some extenuating circumstances about that example. I'd love to talk about this in a more general way. But Alicia, why don't you start, if you don't mind? What are, you, what are your just, if I put it out there very broadly, what are your feelings about the question of credit being accorded somewhere within the restaurant or on a menu? I think that it makes complete sense and that there is a lot of precedent for it, that it's not a completely new concept, not even in the food world itself. There are plenty of cocktail bars, especially, that will put the name of the bartender who developed those drinks either on the written menu or on a on the chalkboard menu at the bar so that, you know, that person, even if they're not being paid extra money for it, is, you know, receiving at least the adulation that goes along with it and is being acknowledged as someone who contributes to, you know, the place where they're working. Um, my my understanding of this is, is really rooted in bars. I've talked to bartenders who are, you know, upset and, and in the past and have felt cheated because they've been you know, expected to take on the added work of developing cocktails without compensation, without, you know, um, necessarily being promised the rights to their intellectual property on that. Um, And so, you know, I think giving credit is a really easy way. It's a completely cheap way of, you know, at least giving some acknowledgement to the fact that these people are contributing their, their real labor, their real creativity to the space where they work, even if they're not um, benefiting from the profits. Can I just ask before I ask Chandra for her just kind of broad take on this? What is, you know, the bar example seems, and I don't mean this at all as a slight against mixologists, bartenders, beverage managers, what these people do. But it seems to me that there's less how do I put this? There's less steps. I mean, I guess today maybe you would say some people might even argue with what I'm saying because people are making ingredients in-house and whatnot. But what is this the story with the you know issue of ownership or, as you said, intellectual property with cocktails? Is it different historically than it is with credit for dishes? Because I, 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 I'm asking this legitimately. I don't cover bars almost at all. I don't really know what the what the etiquette is there. 
Like, is it normal in the past for people to kind of take their their drinks with them? Or is it kind of like it is in restaurants where the assumption or the claim of the restaurant or the bar is intellectual property? Well, I think that depends on how popular the drink has been. You know, um, we all, those of us who pay attention to cocktails know who created the pina colada. We, you know, there's, of course, the Hemingway daiquiri, which isn't credited to the bartender, but with to Ernest Hemingway. But yeah, there there is a lot more precedent, I think, in, in cocktails for the people who popularize the drinks to kind of take on it becomes part of their legacy more so than it does the bar where they worked necessarily. Um, there are newer examples, and it's funny because I'm right now blanking on their actual names, but there are so many new examples of new classics, things like The Last Word, uh, that, you know, they kind of move around with the person who made them more so than a dish would move around with a, a cook from a restaurant. The two things I immediately think of is one is in my past life, and this is a long time, this is almost long enough ago to actually be a past life, but I was a, a publicist. My big corporate client was Starbucks Coffee. And I don't even know if people remember this, but you know, the the Frappuccino, their blended, you know, frozen coffee drink, that was created by a couple of baristas in one of their California stores. And it became like a huge thing for that company. I'm sure at some point they had to have worked something out with those people, but I'm sure it was a drop in the bucket next to, you know, how much those drinks have made. And, and you know, there's even a supermarket version. And, the, the you know, it's funny. The one thing that I always think of about this is there was there's, there used to be a restaurant called Char Number no. 4 in Brooklyn. And the chef, Matt Greco, uh, who moved to California, um, he did kind of a smoked meat uh, dish. It was sort of his take on a Reuben. And they, I don't even think there were lawyers involved, but the owner of the restaurant and when Matt pushed on, they just kind of agreed, you know, that they could, you know, that they would both keep doing it. You know, Matt took, you know, the dish with him and had no problems with the restaurant continuing to do it. It's, it's an interesting murky question. Chandra, where do you fall out on this question? And then I'll share my two cents. I struggle with it. Quite a bit, to be honest. I had the experience as a, you know, as a young line cook, feeling just a tremendous amount of pride when I got the opportunity to present a dish to my chef and say, "Hey, this is this is something I came up with." But at least my experience was that nothing ever made it onto the final menu without that chef's imprint, without his influence without uh, us workshopping it a bit. And I might be very old school about this, but I always saw it as this is his restaurant. And so this is his menu. These are his dishes. Um, you know, as I've been thinking about it since, uh, since the article came out, uh, the Farley Elliott one that you referenced, I mean, my, my initial reaction was, okay, there's a cook who's saying, you know, I made this stuffed French toast. And that's something that I brought with me from a previous job in Las Vegas. I should be credited. And then I start to wonder, well, shouldn't your chef in Las Vegas, I apologize, I'm not sure, uh, I can't remember where this person had worked. Shouldn't that person be credited? But then you get in this slippery slope. And quite frankly, I bumped on that because uh, when I was a, a line cook at a hotel in Maine, I made stuffed French toast, but this was like the mid nineties and I was taking it straight out of the silver palette cookbook, which had probably been around for a decade or more before that. All of which is to say is that very few people are coming up with dishes that are, that they can say don't come from anywhere, don't have any influence um, you know, when I've, when I've talked to chefs, we did a, a piece for Plate's website about the chef Jason Vincent in Chicago, uh, who has Giant and Chef Special. And he talked about his time uh, being an extern uh, at Arzac in France and how he worked on this, you know, this egg dish called Flower of the Egg. And the idea of, you know, the ideas of combining bitter, sour, salty, sweet flavors with this egg and how, you know, eventually when he became the chef de cuisine at Nightwood, he took that dish to his menu there, made some changes to it. And then when he went on to open Giant, he again, you know, 
played around with it, uh, made some changes to it, depending on seasonality, depending on where he was as a chef. And to me, that that just seems like so much of what I see in restaurants. Um, it reminds me of that book, Steal Your Art, that's all about the nature of inspiration and creativity and how you can be inspired by a bite that you had somewhere, but then say, oh, I want to do this in my own way. And I think that you're still you're still creating something new. And, um, but I guess I, I struggle with the idea that any one person owns something. I mean, I think that in the food world, in the restaurant world, the best example I've seen of giving cooks personal credit has been at the Atlanta restaurant gun show, which is Kevin Gillespie's restaurant. And there they start the menu over each week and each cook is in charge of anywhere from one to three dishes. And the chef de cuisine at the restaurant works with them and they kind of workshop for a couple of days. It might even take a couple of weeks. So they're working on dishes for two weeks from now sort of thing um, while executing the current menu. But when you're at gun show, the food comes to you um, a server, a, a, servers aren't bringing the food and you're not necessarily ordering everything in advance. You will be sitting there. A cook comes up to your table and says, here is this roasted bone marrow. And I came up with it. And I, um, I was really influenced by this Korean restaurant and the flavors that I liked there. So I did this, this, and this to it. And it's so different because God knows most line cooks aren't used to talking to people in the dining room. And I can report from the few times I've been to gun show, a lot of them are very uncomfortable with the idea of having to explain their food to someone. But it does make it, um, you know, hilariously, it's very hard to say no to something just because this guy, this woman is standing there in front of you telling you about their inspiration and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, you're so nice. Of course I'm going to order this. And then you look at it and you're like, I'm too full for this. I just ate something similar. Or in my case, once I think I ordered a pineapple dish and my husband looked at me and was like, you're allergic to pineapple. Why did you order that? And I was just like, she was so nice. So, I mean, I love what Kevin is doing. I think it is so cool. I, I just otherwise though, really struggle with the idea that any one person owns any one dish and um, my, my experience back when I was a cook was that anything I created needed to less reflect who I was as a cook, but more reflect the executive chef, the chef owner, and his or her you know, mission, their menu style, their cooking style. So it needed to be something in the, in the style of you know, this place, Cafe Stroudwater, or in the style of Blackbird, or in the style of, of wherever I was, so that it felt it fit in with the rest of the menu. You could do what you wanted as long as you stayed in the in the lane of, of the style, the house style. Right. And so in some ways, I was creating that dish for myself to learn as a cook, but I was creating it for the chef in some respects. And it's really interesting hearing both of you speak about it because, you know, I'm just reminded of all these things. Kitchens are obviously collaborative places. Um, they were, you know, I used to work in the film business and it reminds me very much in some ways of that or, or of the, of theater is maybe a better example. But, um, you know, I do think about the number of suggestions that happen in, on a film set, uh, in theater rehearsal, um, uh, in a fashion organization in a design group, um, where, you know, junior people, people coming up do make suggestions and, you know, it's, 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 it, it's just considered part of the, part of the game. You know, the, I guess we can't get through this conversation without someone quoting, that's what the money's for, from Mad Men. To your point, Alicia, I do think about how I, I have seen menus sometimes where they list, um, you know, maybe down to like the level of sous chef, you know, the people that are in the kitchen, um, I don't know if, if guests necessarily understand that those people might have contributed, but it, it is a way of sort of acknowledging, you know, the, the group and the collaboration. But by the same token, I do think about how many places I've known about um, over the years where, 
you know, the, the staff sometimes on a nightly basis would, you know, sort of get around the, the kitchen uh, or a table and talk about the next day's menu. Uh, and it was very much a group thing. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of been my orientation for the longest time. And as I thought about this question, I thought, well, you know, it, as, as Chandra said, and this is just in my experience observing, I think it's rare that something makes it to the plate without, um, I guess what I call some editing or dramaturging on the part of the chef. But then also I feel like, you know, the, 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 the line cooks, the sous chefs, the people who contribute other ideas are also sort of um, immune from criticism, right? Like if there's a dish that gets savaged in a review, the chef also owns that, right? It's not like they're going to say, hey, that wasn't my, you know, that wasn't my dish. You know, can you please make sure you name, you know, the person who actually came up with it there? So I do think they take it all on. They take the the ups and the downs of of everybody's pass through that restaurant. But Alicia, I guess I'm wondering for you, what would, you mentioned the bar example. Like, do you, the question I guess I have about putting names on menus and crediting things is, you know, I think about what, Chandra said about it's rarely that clean. I mean, if you want to talk about the French toast, I mean, there's the the chef, the person used to work for, and then there's the history of French toast, right, which is centuries old. The thing I wonder is if customers really want to know that or if anyone, you know, I think about when people started putting farms on their menu, which I personally like because I have a very a real soft spot for farmers, but I've heard so many people joke about that for, for years now that it's just, you know, TMI, you know, too much information. They, they, don't, they don't really need to know all that. I, I feel like a lot of people outside of the industry or the people who cover it just, just want just to eat, eat their dinner. Well, uh, I have to issue a correction to my own comment before because I was thinking about the penicillin by Sam Ross from the Bar Milk and Honey, um, not the last word, which is a prohibition cocktail. So just a correction to my, my previous comment. But um, I also, I think that, uh, I, I mean, for me, I think the prioritization of a guest who doesn't care about these things that might be important to the people who work at these restaurants is I, I don't think their feelings should necessarily be prioritized. I also don't think it should be a priority not to uh, invite mockery uh, in the in the press or anything like that, especially with regards to the farm example. I think that that is extremely important because it makes people aware of the fact that the food is coming from somewhere ideally nearby and then they could also maybe support that farm in in the produce they buy if they like the dish or something like that so i also i think that the names on a menu while of course it is a slippery slope and it does get quite murky especially because um as chandra noted you know food and recipes are an ongoing conversation you know and so you can there's the rare dish that you can really trace back to its you know, um, its author, uh, so to speak. But I do think that if something is on a menu that, you know, one particular cook had an especially um, strong hand in developing, I don't think that it is absurd to put that name on the menu because I do think it will remind people that there are other people there that aren't named, maybe called chef or aren't referred to in the press. It reminds writers and reviewers that there are other people there other than the chef and while i do believe taking on you know all that risk with one's name and with one's money in some cases to run a restaurant to own it and and be the chef is important yes because you know they're they are putting all of that on their own their own backs but they're doing that along with these other people who are entrusting their livelihoods to them and entrusting their creativity to them too, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, while the chef might be the one who gets called out in the press, it's going to be the the cook that no one has heard of who gets the brunt perhaps of that chef's rage when, when it comes out that the dish, you know, wasn't satisfactory to the reviewer's uh, palate. So, I mean, it's, it is a definite, it's definitely a very complex question. I think when you're speaking about it very generally, it's difficult to nail down um, one proper way of going about this because there are so many different cases and there are so many different types of restaurants and, 
you know, the the Coslo example has gotten a lot of press for its own very, you know, specific reasons um, that, you know, Farley Elliott wrote about in his piece. And, you know, I've discussed with with workers at Squirrel as well over the last week. And so that that one specific um, restaurant is, is a bit more easier to discuss than, you know, the general. But um, I think in general terms, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt anybody to say if it makes sense for a place, uh, let's put the let's put the name of the person who developed this recipe on the menu. It doesn't detract anything, I don't think. Talking in specifics is, of course, easier, right? Because you could just look at it. You could take it. You could dissect it. You could do it. If you wanted to, you can, could conduct an independent investigation. I just wonder if it bothers either of you that there seems to be, you know, I, I understand any website that is, uh, you know, uh, that sells advertising that has to demonstrate its, you know, its its popularity and page views and all this stuff is going to jump on a trend. But I feel like, you know, the trend in that case has actually become a little bit just, you know, like t- taking down Jessica Coslow. Um, you know, I read that piece and I think a lot of what was raised in it was fair game. But then there was an example where it was stated that she, you know, has given some credit on social media. She has pushed some of her people for awards. Um, she gives credit to some people in headnotes in her cookbook. Um, and then it said, oh, but she does not credit her co-author on the cover. Now, that is, I, I've collaborated on a couple of dozen books. Um, I, you know, I didn't have my credit on the first one. Um, subsequently, I've had my name on most books, but there have been times where I haven't. Um, uh, I, you know, I think those things are as much as the chef and the collaborator decided by agents and, and sometimes lawyers. And also in any collaboration deal I've ever signed, there is an exception that gives the publisher the right to override any promises if they feel that only the chef should be on the cover. And when I read that in that article, I thought, that's really straining to just take one more shot at this person. And I, you know, I can't speak to all the other stuff that's been accused. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of people on the record. I, I'm not even questioning it. But as a, as a, as someone who does write write articles myself, that just felt like so out of bounds. It didn't. It's. It was. It was really faulty as an example, and it felt to me like it was just straining to kind of you know, get in the licks for the day. I mean, my thing was, my initial thought was, okay, well, that's, that's up to the co-author's agreement. That's, that's all in writing because on the, the two cookbooks I've co-authored, it's spelled out very clearly where, where I would be named. Um, it, on, on one of them, my name is in a much smaller font size than uh, than the chef, and that's fine because it was all in the contract. So that's that's where I think, okay, well, I don't know if her co-author is upset about that, but were I to be upset about it, the first person I would talk to is my agent and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Why did this happen? With the understanding, as you pointed out, Andrew, that. There are a lot of times the publisher is is the person who's going to make the call on that, and so that that part of it felt like uh, maybe this person doesn't understand how cookbooks are written and how they're published more so than anything to me. Um, but I mean, especially Andrew, like I said, like you said, I mean, you've written you've written a few dozen books and it does, it does differ on, you know, per book. I've had people talk to me about ghost writing a book. And, you know, one of my things has been like, Hey, I don't want to do anything and not put my name on it. But I've also been in a position where I can say no to that. So, um, I think I, I really think that that's, that's a publishing deal and, and not something that any chef is doing out of, uh, out of malice. So the next thing I want to mention, and I have to say, Alicia, you know, you and I had never even, I don't think messaged each other on a, on a social media platform before the other day when I reached out and I, I felt quite 
prescient about reaching out to you about this when I got your Monday newsletter, um, which was titled On Restaurants and the Death of the Chef, because I feel like it kind of touched on both these things that we were going to talk about. So the other article I wanted to, to touch on was, and I hope I'm pronouncing your, her name right, maybe one of you knows, Kate Telfayan. It's T-E-L-F-E-Y-A-N. Um, if anyone wants to correct me, feel free. But I, Kate, if I mispronounce your name, my apologies. But um, she wrote an article. It was about how the, the media, as the, as the headline suggested, has created kitchen monsters. And I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table with this. I, there were a couple of things about this that, I mean, I know the, I know what she, the point she's making, and I know a lot of people do feel that way. I have to say that I don't believe that the media has created these people. You know, I look at someone like Gordon Ramsay, who's who's been on television, you know, screaming and spitting in people's faces for, I think, 18 seasons now. I didn't even, to be honest, until I was getting ready to talk to you guys, I didn't know that show was still on the air, but Hell's Kitchen is actually still ex- extant. Yeah, I had no idea, and it's been renewed for its 19th and 20th seasons. Um, but... Uh, you know, uh, there's a, obviously he represents a certain stereotype of kitchen behavior. Um, it's it's in a lot of cases, including his, as I understand it, very true to life. Um, it's obviously something that's come very much under fire, which I think is 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 correct. That's something that needed to happen. But I don't believe. You know, I think there are people who were working in brutal. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not condoning any of this, but. You know, you, there are people who were cooking in, in kitchens back in the 1950s before there was such a thing as a famous chef who would describe all that same behavior. I, I don't think necessarily it got created that way because of the media coverage. And also, uh, you know, there was a call in this piece for people to do more work to expose this behavior and... Uh, you know, one thing I want to talk about is the sort of what I think of as like the strata of of offenses, because I, I do think you have to calibrate these things. Uh, but, uh, you know, I look at someone like Ramsey and it, he didn't lose his show because of those outbursts. The outbursts are why there is a show. I mean, you know, people have been aware of this guy's temper for a long time and it's done nothing but grow his business. And the other thing I'd like to talk about is... Um, you know, this call for journalists to do more, I mean, basically what to me would be investigative reporting or more exposés, because I think that's a lot easier said than done. But I'd love to know on this initial point if, and Chandra, let's start with you. Did the media create these people? Do I have a huge blind spot here? Because if I do, I I mean, I'm completely open to hearing that. I mean, I think to your point, you know, Gordon Ramsay seems to have been, you know, self-created and perhaps emerged fully formed. Um, but did the media create these people? I don't know that I can give a hard yes or no 100% in in either direction on that. I think that the media gloms on to certain people and and then and says, "Oh, okay, this person is cool. This person has an interesting story. This person even has an interesting look and they're going to be uh, this is what's going to work. But a lot of it also comes down to the fact that we're, as journalists, we're, we're looking at what, you know, who can we write about that is interesting, that has something good to say, and that people will click on. And I, I really, I hope you can hear in my voice how much I say, I hate saying that. But we have many times in plate run articles about people who are fascinating, who are doing incredibly um, service-focused work. And unless there is some sort of shtick or big name affiliated with them, the articles don't get the click. And that's how we pay our bills. So it is hard because... I think if you're looking at the example of that article and, you know, one of the chefs referenced in the article, Danny Bowen, I mean, he's got, he, you know, he's, he's got food that people find very interesting. He's been able to create this cult of personality. 
Um, he has a very defined look. He seems to be, you know, he certainly didn't ignore the media gaze when he was uh, putting all of this together. So I think that that's, that's important to note, but it's, it's hard. It, it really is a challenge, uh, but it's, it's also a challenge that I think, and Alicia's, Alicia's alluded to this and, and alternately like stated it forthright in her writing, which I go to every week. There's just the fact that food media needs to change. And there's a, as much as the food industry needs to change. You know, I look at Gordon Ramsay screaming at people and I can't understand why anyone finds that to be entertaining. It really disgusts me. And in the same way that we're very slowly and incrementally seeing restaurant culture change and kitchen culture change and more and more chefs acknowledging rather than repeat what I went through, I want to change it. Media needs to change along with that and, and, and does need to, and, and does need to address it. But we are we are all hamstrung by what is going to help us survive financially, and that's if you're a restaurant, a chef, a restaurant owner, or a chef, or if you're an editor. Uh, Alicia, what did I think? I saw a tweet from you. I think maybe it was in response to, or maybe she was responding to you to Salil Ho in uh, San Francisco. You know, um, the idea which I have no problem with. And I've, I've actually tried in some t uh, different times to get people to come on this show to talk about some of these things. Um, but the idea of, of journalists doing a better job of, of outing bad behavior. And the question came up of, you know, in a lot, a lot of the Twitter conversation that happened, uh, you know, easier said than done. Not that easy to get people on the record. Not that easy to get enough people on the record to clear uh, you know, your your legal department. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I think that's absolutely true. There, there is a real difficulty in, in getting people like line cooks or servers or barbacks, you know, dishwashers, the people who have these stories to tell. It, it's hard to get them on the record for reasons of, you know, self-preservation, for reasons of perhaps having an undocumented immigration status, um, you know, people can't lose their livelihoods. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation about how easy it is for someone to lose their livelihood or, or be deported or, or something like that. And so when I was talking to Soleil on Twitter, and I know Chris Crowley from Grub Street at New York Magazine also did a huge thread on this. Um, it, it is really difficult. And it's not always the journalists, you know, lack of a trying or lack of interest or anything like that that makes these stories difficult to tell. It's about people being afraid for their livelihoods. And I mean, I think the way you adjust that and you adjust expectations is to, you know, do more reporting on the existence of these barriers to, to talking and why, you know, why is the restaurant industry so dependent on, on undocumented immigrant labor. Why is the restaurant industry, you know, um, creating people who are fearful of speaking out? Um, why, you know, what are the forces at play here? And that goes into something else I was saying, I think when Kate's piece came out in the New Republic, which is that in food media, there's a lot of, you know, celebrity profiles, there's a lot of restaurant reviews, there's a lot of re recipes and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, there is journalism, there is reporting, but there is a lack of kind of what the F New Republic has jumped in this year, I think, to to do, which is cultural criticism, which kind of looks at the way the media functions in in the landscape of, you know, politics and economics and broader cultural forces and broader political forces, you know. And I think that that had been missing from food media. And I think it it's a good thing that it is emerging so that we can have these hard conversations and look at what we're covering, how we're covering it, and maybe make adjustments to those things that will create a more equitable industry, not just in food media, but in, in the restaurant and, and bar industry um, for the people who work in it. You know, we do have that role to play. We do, you know, it is a responsibility to try to ensure that the industry we cover 
isn't exploitative. Um, and if it is exploitative, we have to make, you know, make, make changes to what we do and, and how we do it in order to try and change the norms. Because, yeah, I mean, Gordon Ramsay has been yelling at people for a long time. Kitchens have probably been nightmare abusive situations for as long as restaurants have existed. But that doesn't mean that we uh, we let that continue. Yeah. No, I to- I again, I want to stress, I totally agree with that. I just don't know that. I don't know that the media is the Dr. Frankenstein. I think maybe they're more of, uh, well, I don't have the rest of the, ex- I don't have the rest of the metaphor. <laughs> you know, I, I, just to add to what you just said, Alicia, you know, in terms of the sourcing for these things, you know, I personally, you know, when the, when the stories about, you know, John Besh and Mario Batali broke, I guess, whew, I guess what, uh, about two, two and a half years ago, I think it was Julia Moskin of the two of them. But I know she and, and Kim Severson were trying very hard uh, to write about more uh, stories in this area. I think Julia, at one point, I'm almost positive of this, actually put her phone number at the Times in a tweet, um, you know, right on the heels of the Mario story and said, you know, please, you know, reach out. And, you know, for all of that effort there, and I, this is not a criticism, I just think it really speaks to how hard it is to do this in a in a way that will pass um, – you know, editor and legal muster is, uh, you know, there, there haven't, it's not like there's been a slew of pieces that, that they've turned out. Um, you know, I think it is very hard. I would also add that I only became aware of this recently, but you know, there are restaurants and I'm not just talking about at the, the kind of the highest end, uh, in terms of, of expense and formality, but you know, some restaurant, some restaurants, if they do have an employee handbook, now include in the handbook that you're not to speak to a journalist. Um, and it's actually can be grounds for dismissal. Um, and it doesn't have to be about any, obviously it's not explained why, but it could be about seemingly benign things. It's just, you're, you're just not supposed to do that, right? That's a, a violation of the terms of your employment. Now, that was news to me after being around this for 20 years. I had never heard of that, but it was, I was just proved to me recently that that does happen. Where I sort of net out is if there's someone who I know personally to be, um, uh, I guess I would just simply put it as a really bad person. <laughs> um, I just I just kind of avoid using them even as a source. You know, I mean, I don't know what Gordon's like in his personal life. I've never tried to interview Gordon Ramsay. I don't, you know, I, I think I've watched that show once. I think it's a force for bad in the industry. Um, uh, and there's some, you know, multi Michelin starred people within 20 miles of where I'm talking to the two of you that I've never asked for an interview um, because I just know too much, you know, knowing a lot of cooks and former sous chefs. Um, so, you know, my personal approach is to deny oxygen. Um, but I do take your point, Alicia, about it. it you know, it, if you're in a position to or if you're able to, this is something that ought to be addressed. Can I ask, do do either of you find there to be a lack of stratification or calibration around um, kitchen offenses? Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I think any restaurant that does a good business um, uh, that, you know, is in the public eye, whether by social media or, or ex- anticipated reviews. Um, I think a busy kitchen is, is a very high pressure situation. I think it takes a very evolved person, uh, to not boil over at least once in a while. I mean, even people I know who have been outspoken about, the need for that culture to change have told me it still does happen sometimes. You know, what's different for them now is that, you know, it's they apologize at the end of the night, um, but that the pressure gets to them the way the pressure will eventually get to people anywhere. Um, you know, I almost feel like the feeling toward that kind of a moment uh, or people who are prone to that kind of an outburst or that kind of um, temper in a kitchen has almost become equated with much more, to my mind, um, uh, offensive, uh, criminal uh, behavior. You know, whether it's verbal abuse that takes uh, certain forms, uh, whether it's obviously sexual abuse and harassment. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Chandra, let's start with you on this one. Having been in a kitchen yourself, it, you know, again, is that 
is that a horribly outdated point of view? Is it is a temper or or uh, an outburst of some kind in a kitchen just um, is that something that can ever really be fully eradicated? And I, I'm again, I'm perfectly happy to be corrected, um, but but I think that's a very tall order. I think perfection on that level is a tall order. Sure. I mean, whatever perfection is. I mean, I will say, like, if you have if you have been on the line in the moment when your chef or whoever's expediting counts the plates for a large party and says, hey, you've only got 19 of these and there's supposed to be 20, where is the 20th? And you realize there is no product. There is nothing cooked. There is nothing like someone completely screwed up. And like, that's an ugly moment. And, and cheers to anyone who can, can contain their temper in that. I think that, you know, it's, it's the difference between the chef who's like, okay, you know, damn it. All right. This is what we're going to do to fix it. And we'll, we'll figure out how it happened later. And the chef who throws you know, a saute pan full of hot oil at someone. And I've, you know, unfortunately experienced the latter and not the former, but I do know chefs who have done a lot of work to be more of the latter and mad at the moment and not necessarily taking it out on the people. Uh, But I guess, you know, and and maybe I'm going to sound really naive here, but I've just been, you know, watching everything and talking to a lot of people since the thing, you know, the pandemic started four months ago. And especially in the last few weeks, when I think there's been this collective realization that we are not getting out of this anytime remotely soon. We are looking at at least another year before we start to have any ease in this. And there is a change. You know, no society, no industry can go through what restaurants are going through right now and what we in American society are going through without change. And I, I see that, I, I, I see, you know, per this question, so many people getting called out for behavior and it could be based on racism. It could be based on, you know, a lot of people who are very well-meaning not creating enough checks and balances in their own operation that kept them free of racist behavior. However it shakes out, I see a lot more people actively working towards making restaurants more equitable. And I really hope that that model can continue. I, I fear that we as an industry are going to be collect, you know, frantically collecting every single nickel that moving forward until, until there is a vaccine and there is wide use of that vaccine. But I, I hope if, if we're, you know, there are a lot of inherent ills in the restaurant industry and racist, sexist behavior. Um, you know, I was so disheartened to see that Danny Meyer had has kind of thrown in the towel on tipping because that is something that perpetuates racism and sexism in restaurants. On the other hand, I, I absolutely understand him not wanting to feel like he's stopping his employees from getting any any more money than they can. So all of which is to say there are a lot of things in the industry that are that have felt very inherent to the industry and people said couldn't go away until the whole thing blew up for better or worse, the industry's blowing up right now. So I would love to maintain some hope for the future that we can emerge from this whenever we do come out of this better for it. But Alicia, you tell me, am I being like a total schmo with this? I don't think you're being naive at all. I I think that that's what the hope has to be. And I think that, um, you know, as long as people can keep having these moments of reckoning and, and figuring out exactly what the restaurant needs to be, what it can be in the future, um, what new models can look like, being open to new models, being open to discussing those those models and potentially, you know, what new ways of covering those models look like. I mean, I think Plate is a good example of this. You know, I've written 
for the magazine before. And even in the past, you guys have been open to chefs that aren't clicky. And so, you know, um, in, in a way, in a way that, you know, other magazines just have not been, you know, but that's because you've been industry facing. And so there's been that openness to that, to actually covering people who are making a mark, but maybe not making it in the way that, you know, a bigger magazine is going to cover. Um, and, you know, being able to being agile in what can be covered and what and how it can be covered is, I think, the way forward out of this, um, because as you said, we're in this pandemic limbo for quite, we're going to be in it for a while. And so um, we're going to have to figure out how to write about food in all new ways. And I think that that will be good because, you know, it's, it's not just about going out to a restaurant. It's, you know, it's about so much more than that. And so being forced into covering everything beyond restaurants is going to be a really good exercise, I think, for, for food media. And I think that a lot of people in the industry itself are really receptive now to changing things because, you know, right, we're, we're in a complete and utter disaster with no, no easy way out. And so the people I've seen be most kind of, I won't say Teflon in this, but like most able to weather this storm have been, you know, independent um, owners, small people who stayed small, who didn't grow beyond, you know, maybe one restaurant or one bakery. And, you know, they've just been nimble and they've been able to keep people employed and they've been able to keep people paid. And um, I think pe people with bigger platforms should learn from that. But, you know, what we've seen is good in a crisis is, is a model that is smaller, that is employee forward that is, you know, probably doesn't have tipping. I don't think I, I, I haven't, I mean, I know Danny Meyer is going back to a tipping model, but from people that I've spoken to in the industry who, who run places, it, it's been a way for people to really survive is to, is to have no tipping um, because they simply have more money in the bank all the time. And so that's helped them weather this. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I see this as a moment of hope. I don't think it's naive to be hopeful right now um, at all because everyone has to, changes that were, people were going to be hesitant to are now people are being forced into. Well, you wrote in your uh, in your essay, I was going to say the other day, but I've also just had this spectacularly long week, I can say on Tuesday afternoon. But I mean, you wrote the chef as an ego is irrelevant. The chef is dead. And I'm so fascinated by that idea because I think that where we are is is on the precipice of something where everything does have to change. I mean, for Plate, we're changing our entire editorial mission and focus because what exists simply on the Plate is is no longer relevant. It's about where it fits in food culture, in our culture overall, in kitchen culture and 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 how all of it comes together. Yeah, and I would add how it fits. I mean, increasingly how it fits into its community. You know how it fits into the into the world. Um, uh, I I personally think that the I haven't even read about it. Someone just told me about it. I I have to think the Union Square thing is a way for people to get. Um, you know, people are tipping if they can, or at least I am, and I know people who are, and I'm just a humble scribe. I know, you know, a lot of people are tipping lavishly right now. Um, I would bet, because it's ironic to me, I know so many people who are trying to figure out how to be in, how to go no tipping when they reopen. Um, uh, I would bet that Union Square Hospitality Group will get back on that um, if it gains critical mass. I, I, I hope they will. Um, you know, the line I think of is... Uh, uh, you know, I had Amanda Cohen on the show uh, not that long ago, and, and she said, and, and she's a fairly evolved progressive, you know, chef owner, um, but she said to me, if I reopen the same restaurant that I closed in March, I'll be personally embarrassed, you know, and I think that sums up where a lot of people are right now. I also, Chandra, to your point um, about the way the, even, you know, just forget the throwing of the saute pans, obviously that was 
never was and never will be something okay. Um, I actually used to think when I first got around the business, I thought that was a joke. You know, people would say that. And I'm like, oh, that's such a funny cartoonish exaggeration. And then I realized it was completely real along with, you know, smacking people and um, anything else you could think of. But um, I will say, and I can't name names, but, you know, there are chefs I know who came up in some of these grueling kitchens. And some of these people are even in their 40s now. I mean, this is almost like, you know, seeing the first episode of The Sopranos when when Tony Soprano was going to therapy. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know these people who the last people pe one would expect who are learning meditation, you know, going into therapy, um, really, really trying to do what's really hard to do for anybody, which is to change. You know, I do think there are people who do want to see this um, kind of behavior, you know, snuffed out once and for all. Um let me give you both the last word. We've talked about a lot. These are obviously broad topics. I'm um, just wondering if there's anything that you had in mind that you didn't get to, that you thought of after you finished talking, anything you might want to add. Um, Chandra, you've been on the show before, so why don't you go first, and then Alicia will get the, the last word. You know, I, I I think it's just to just to say that we're, you know, everything is changing. Everything is changing in our world. And I think that, and we're very hopeful for more change. I mean, I, I live in a, in a bubble full of people who every day, you know, like go online, see the national news and say, I didn't think it could get any worse. And so there is going to be, you know, there is going to be a lot of push and a lot of back and forth as we're trying to make our country a better place with a better leader and uh, and as we're, as we're trying to fix a lot of things. So I think, I think right now we're in the really messy time. So we kind of have to put our heads down, not meaning to ignore it, but we have to just continue to do the work. And so all of those, you know, do the work we promised in all of those black tiles posted on Instagram five, six weeks ago. And, uh, and, and, and the work that we, that we say we, we want and, and a lot of it's going to suck, but the only option is to push through. Well, just to respond to, I mean, Chandra quoted my newsletter where I said, you know, the chef is dead. And I, I just want to make sure people know that that's a metaphorical death in the sense of, of Roland Barthes, um, the death of the author, which is about recognizing sort of exactly what we were talking about in the first question about, you know, citations and, and credit and that sort of thing, which is just to recognize that the chef is never this all-knowing food god or goddess. You know, the chef is a person doing a job in collaboration with others, in collaboration with farmers, with fishermen, with butchers, with, you know, with their cooks and sous chefs and with their servers who are explaining the dishes, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of just wanting to ask people to think about that idea in a, in a more, the idea of the chef as a, you know, less of a person and more of a, a concept and not, and not just, you know, this, this person we look up to like a celebrity as in, you know, the phrase celebrity chef and changing how we cover restaurants and cover food to better recognize that, you know, every dish and everything we eat is, is made by, you know, really grand systems that have been made a bit invisible, but um, if we see them, then we can change them and make them more equitable for people at every level. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Alicia Kennedy and Chandra Ram for making themselves available for this conversation. Again, links to their online homes are on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And if you listen at Apple Podcasts, the links there are functional as well. My great thanks, as always, to After School Special for providing their music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Please visit and or bookmark our website, andrewtalkstochefs.com, for all of the 
most recent shows and information about the podcast as well as my blog, Tokeland. You can also subscribe to updates from the website for free via the link in the upper right-hand corner of that page. And that's it for today. See you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>